Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio I'm going to cover Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. This is the famous section of scripture that covers Christ's kenosis, his emptying of himself. The context is this, in chapter 1, Paul had said to die is Christ and live is gain. He couldn't decide whether he wanted to hang around and help the Philippians or go on to be with Jesus in heaven. He said that his imprisonment in the cause of Christ in Rome had turned out for the greater progress for the gospel because people in the Praetorian Guard had now heard the gospel. So he was basically writing a letter of encouragement as he was imprisoned in the jail. He said, rejoice, rejoice, when he was referring to people who were preaching the gospel out of strife and contention in order to embarrass him. So that's the context. We start in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, in the last couple of verses of chapter 1, Paul had said this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul is saying, given the, given the suffering that's going on, for both for you Philippians and for me in jail, because of that suffering, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, in other words, we need to encourage one another because we're suffering. If there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. Now, what does Paul mean by fellowship of the Spirit? Well, he could mean the Spirit of one saint with another saint. In that case, the Spirit would be a lowercase s. If there's any fellowship of like-minded spirits in the Philippian church. Gill and Clark mentioned that as an option. They say that this is could be the fellowship of the saints brought together, brought about by the Holy Spirit. Another option is that the S is capitalized in its fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and that would be if there's any fellowship of Christians' spirits with the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, fellowship of Christians with God. John Gill mentions that. Or, to me, it just means if there's any fellowship of Christians which is brought about by the Holy Spirit. In other words, any fellowship produced by the Holy Spirit. Fellowship of Christians, one with another. And I think that's what it means. The Greek there is koinonia, fellowship. That word is translated participate. If you, you, you participate in a meeting or participate in somebody's life or you're a partaker of, that's koinonia. It means it's translated share sometimes. If you participate with me in, the, in giving, that's sharing money. The Holy Communion, the communion of the saints, or the communion with the bread and the wine and the meal, that's also called communion, koinonia. Famous word. And here Paul uses that word again fellowship produced by the Holy Spirit, if there's that, and of course there is, if there's any affection and compassion, that of course could be affection and compassion coming from the Holy Spirit to the Philippians, or it could be with Philippians' spirit one with another. Number two, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Now, of course, the if there means, it means since, really, since there is that, the consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and compassion, since that exists, Paul says, well, then make me happy. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. In other words, don't be divided with one another. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians should be lock-stepped clones, as the NIV Study Bible says. Rather, they should be of the same mind in essentially two things, their obedience to Christ and care for others in the church. If they do that, all the other little things will be just fine. The NIV Study Bible actually says that God 
it says that God actually de- delights in diversity. There's nothing wrong with people being different about things, even if they disagree on little things, because it's absolutely impossible to agree on everything. Paul would not ask the Philippians to do the impossible, but it is. But being united in love, that is possible. Being of the same mind toward the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is absolutely possible. United in spirit and intent on one purpose, spreading the gospel, seeing the kingdom of God spread on the earth. That's the kind of unity we need and we want and we should have. Verse 2, Paul mentions the same love, maintaining the same love. Two options there. It could mean the Philippians are to have the same love for each other. Each Philippian loves the other Philippian in the same way that that Philippian loves them back. Or it could be each Philippian loves Christ in the same way. All have the same love for Jesus. Not sure what Paul meant there, but the, but it's obvious that the whole overall general idea is is to be united in spirit, don't be divided up, especially in light of all the suffering that's going on. Again, we don't know what the persecution of the Philippian church was. Paul mentions it in the last cha- end of last chapter, but it's not recorded exactly who was after the Philippians. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, Paul continues, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now Paul here exhorts the Philippians straight out to be humble, and he's going to use the famous example of Jesus being humble to encourage them to be humble. I don't know if some of the Philippians had a problem with pride or not, but Paul exhorts them here. He says, consider one another as more important than yourself. That does not mean that one is not important at all and that you are a nothing burger or that an individual Philippian might be worthless. And as he considers everybody else more important than him, it means do not it means do not merely, notice that in verse 4 he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interest. That means you need to look out for your personal interest and for the personal interest of everybody else in the church. There's nothing sinful about looking out for your personal interest. But of course the problem is, is most people look out for their own personal interest and never give a flying rip about everybody else. Well, that's flesh, that's a no-no. Notice the also at verse 4, look out also for the interest of others. That means you look out for your interest and look out for, for other people. I mention that because there are people that have, we have a name for it. it you, they look out for each other so much that they, that they can't function in society. They're always asking you to go ahead for them in the line, even though they're holding up the line where you go. And they're just, it's kind of pitiful, you know. You, that's not what Paul means. He means you take care of your business and take care of everybody else's business, business. And if everybody else is doing that, then everybody gets taken care of. Because we're all in it together. We're all in the Christian enterprise together. We go now to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. Paul now enters into his famous canonic passage, passage the emptying passage. Verse 5. Starting there, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So when Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, he is talking, he is using Jesus's attitude to be an example for the way the Philippians' attitude ought to be. And we often miss that. We get so caught up into this canonic passage. He was quoting this not as a matter of abstract soteriology or um, systematic theology. He was doing this as a practical moral exhortation for, to the Philippi, for the Philippians. 
Now, this phrase, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, is obviously poetic, even lyric, as the NIV Study Bible says. Many people think it's an early hymn or an early creed, maybe. People get all excited about these early hymns and creeds that are scattered throughout the New Testament scriptures. I don't know why they do, because it doesn't mean anything to me, but maybe it might mean something. It's just worthy of note, I suppose. Notice that my translation here is very misleading. I'm using the New American Standard Bible. And verse 6 says, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, think about it. The although creates a contrast, an apparent contradiction between two things. Thing number one, although, number one, he existed in the form of God, and thing number two, regarded himself equal with God. Well, how is existing in the form of God and regarding yourself equal to God, where's the contrast? It would be both and, not not but he exists in the form of God. But even though he exists in the form of God, he also regards himself equal with God. That makes no sense to me. Well, the Holman Christian Study Bible translation of that verse fixes that problem. It says, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. It doesn't say who, although exists in the form of God, it just says who, existing in the form of God, did not, and because of that, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. And that, my friends, makes a lot more sense. So we'll just take the NASB and say who, existing in the form of God, did not regard equality of, with God a thing to be grasped. All right, so existed in the form of God. Now, the NIV for form has in the nature of God, and its marginal rendition has in the form of God, and most all the English translations have in the form of God. Now, you have, there's a problem here. Jesus existed in the form of God. When you hear the English word form, you think the outward appearance of God. Well, how did Jesus exist in the outward appearance of God? You looked at Jesus, you saw a man. You didn't see God. You didn't see a big ball of light. You saw God. And, and using the word form, it sounds like Jesus is a mere likeness of God. Not that he has the essential nature of God. Well, how should that word be translated? John Gill says that it should be Jesus was of the very essence or substance or nature of God, like the NIV has it. Well, that makes sense to me. But there's another option, Adam Clark mentioned. It could be that Jesus manifested himself to humans with his appearance differently than God does now, than God manifested himself in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, God was a brilliant light. As a matter of fact, Jesus on the road to Damascus was a brilliant light, too. But now he appears to human beings as a man. If you looked at Jesus now, he would look like a carpenter from Nazareth, like a human being. Just like a human being. You wouldn't know he was God. He would look, you would think he was a man. The Greek, def, the Greek word there is morphe, I think it is. Thayer's definition is this, the form by which a person or thing strikes the vision. In other words... And another, his second definition, Thayer's second def, definition, is external appearance. So Jesus appears to us not now as big, bright, flashing light, but he appears to us as a human being. I think that makes a lot of sense. So he existed in the form of God. The problem then, then of course, I guess that would be in, in his pre-incarnate state. He existed in the form of God. So if we saw Jesus, he would look like a flash of light. He wouldn't like, like, look like a human being. So that's before the incarnation. Well, if that is true, if that's what Paul means here by form, that he existed in the past in the Old Testament in the form of God, he, he, he presented himself 
to our visual senses, to people's visual senses. His external appearance was God because he was a big, bright ball of light. If that's what God, Paul means, that does not preclude the NIV's translation, which says that Jesus existed in the nature of God. Because he was God, we know that Jesus was God. Okay, so I'm going to assume I, I like the idea that he's in the nature of God. Although he existed in the nature of God, he did not regard equality, no, excuse me, who, who existing in the form of God, and because he was existing in the form of God, he did not regard equality with a thing to be grasped. In other words, a thing to be reached for. It wasn't. It wasn't any big deal to him. It wasn't a thing that he had to reach for that he didn't have, because he already had it. He already had equality with God. Paul's whole point here in verse six is that Jesus was God, despite the fact he was God. He nevertheless, in verse seven, emptied himself and took on the form of a human being, a bond slave made in the likeness of men. So there's your big contrast. God as Jesus is God and Jesus is human. Big contrast. And of course, Paul is making an a fortiori argument here. Implicitly, he's saying, look, if Jesus can humble himself, Jesus who was God, don't you think that you lowly Philippians can humble yourselves also? If you think that's so hard to do, think what Jesus had to do to humble himself. Now, Jesus was equal with God, as we said in verse 6. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He might have appeared to humans. Jesus might have appeared to humans differently before and after the incarnation. But Jesus was equal to God in Jesus' essence before and after the incarnation. Here's Jesus before the incarnation. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. That famous scripture that Jesus is God. All right, that's before the incarnation. After the incarnation... He was still equal to God. John 5:18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Before and after the incarnation, Jesus was God, and he was equal with God in his essence. So, we get to verse 7, the famous canonic verse. He emptied himself. Kanao is the Greek word used there for emptied, from which we get the famous word kenosis, the emptying of Jesus. Other translations are as such. King James says he made himself of no reputation. The NIV says he made himself nothing. Now, it's very important to note here that this does not mean that Jesus deprived himself of the very nature or essence of God. Paul had just finished saying he was equal with God in verse 6. He would not then turn around and say in verse 7, well, he gave up that equality of God. As I finished saying before, before the incarnation and after the incarnation, Jesus was God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That's before the incarnation, but afterwards he was still equal with God. John 5.18, he was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God, even after the incarnation. So people who try to deny the divinity of Jesus, liberal theologians and other people, will use this verse in a... Well, they will rest this verse to their own destruction. They'll twist it and make it say something is not Paul never meant for it to say. He did not give up his essence as God. He gave up his privileges and his honor of being God. In fact, King James has the best translation, in my opinion, or one of the best that I've seen. He says he made himself of no reputation, gave up his honor, became a humble carpenter's son, form of a bond servant, looked just like a slave. You looked at a slave back then, you look at Jesus, you couldn't tell the difference. He was in the likeness of sinful men, it says in verse 7. He was like sinful men in every particular, except for one. He had the same body as a sinful man. He had the same soul, 
mind, will, and emotions. He had the same sorrows, the same griefs, the same reproaches, the same persecutions, the same temptations. But there was one thing he had that was not like men at all, sin. So he was not exactly like fallen human beings, but he was he was he had the same essence as humans did he was human in his essence just like i look at myself in a mirror and that likeness is not exactly like me but it's pretty darn close so paul draws the greatest contrast he can he takes a god jesus and he says this jesus became a scumbag human being that takes a lot of humility to do that philippians 2 8 through 11 being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He, as I said, he was found in appearance as a man. We read Romans 8, 3 and we read this for what the law could not do weakens it was through the flesh god did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh the appearance of a man the likeness of sinful flesh he just appears to us as a man you look at him he looks like he's a man as an offering for sin paul continues he condemns sin in the flesh romans 8 3 so jesus he looked like a man and i don't mean to say when you say that jesus looked like a man that he wasn't a man also of course he was fully human that's basic theology 101 so even though he looked like a man, and even though he was a man, he humbled himself. I, should, I shouldn't have said even though. Being, though, is what I should say. Being that he was in, found appearance as a man, he humbled himself. In other words, it was a humbling thing to appear as a man. Now, I said that he appeared as a man, but that doesn't mean that he actually was only looking like a man, but wasn't really a man. That can't be the proper interpretation. Let's look at this word as, and it found an appearance as a man. I'll give you an example of in Matthew, where we see the word as, and we'll see that it does not imply that the the thing being com compared is not truly what it appeared to be. Matthew 14, 5, although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John, this is John the Baptist, they regarded John as a prophet. Well, John was a prophet, and the crowd regarded him as a prophet. So there you see the as can, com can compare to two things and the first thing that's compared is truly what it appears to be and so likewise jesus appeared to be a man because he was a man it was not a false appearance in other words it was a true appearance he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death now it's one thing for jesus who's god to humble himself and appear as a man that's pretty humbling but not only did he appear as a man he came and died like a man how much more humiliating was it for him to be put to death as a criminal on the cross now that's humility that's going from the highest heaven to a degrading death on the cross. Paul points it out. He says, Paul, Jesus became obedient. How, how obedient was he? To the point of death, even death on the cross. That's complete humility there. Now, he was obedient. Who was he obedient to? He, he was obedient to God because it was God's command that Jesus die on the cross for sinful man. Remember when Jesus asked his father, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. And God refused to take it away from me. What did Jesus do? He says, okay, not my will, God, but your will. I'm going to the cross. He was obedient even to death on the cross. Verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him. For what reason? Well, to me, it's just simply easiest way to take that is because Jesus obeyed, because he was obedient even to death on the cross. But because he was obedient, for that reason, God exalted him. God 
honors obedience. A good application point there is if you want to get exalted by God, you've got to be obedient to him. And that means you might have to be obedient in some situations which are not pleasant. You might have to have your flesh crucified, your pride. Boy, I tell you, this one thing is hard to kill is human pride. It's like a bat. You beat a bat with a, I've done this before, with a broomstick. You beat the bat, and you beat the bat, and you beat the bat, and you think, this this thing ain't ever going to die. Boy, if I'd have known back then it was full of coronaviruses, I might have let him alone. <laughs> but, but at any rate, for that reason, because Jesus humbled himself, God highly exalted him. Now, there's another possible interpretation of what reason means, for what reason, because this is John Gill's idea, because God has subjected Jesus to the indignity of death in order to atone for sin. For that reason, he therefore had to exalt Jesus in order to finish the job, in order to get rid of sin. Well, okay, maybe. I mean, that's logical, but I don't think that's just as straightforward as what I said, because he's obedient, God exalted him. And God bestowed on him, on Jesus, the name which is above every name. He exalted him. To exalt means to lift up, to lift up on high. There's lots of scriptures that say that Jesus was exalted. Let me read you some of them. Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is lifted up over his enemies at the right hand of God is the position of power and authority of a king. Matthew 28:18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is when he was appear, appearing to the 500 at the end of, after he was resurrected. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven on the earth. In other words, I'm the big shot now. I'm in charge. Luke 24:26. was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? His glory. That means he is radiant. He is effulgent. He, he shines in his majesty, he's not humiliated like a, like a dead criminal on the cross anymore. John 5:27, and he gave him, God gave Jesus authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus has the authority to execute judgment over all of humankind. One day we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14:9. for this end Christ died and lived again that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. To be Lord of the dead and other living, that means he's in charge of all of us. Everybody, because that encompasses everybody. Either you're living or you're dead. And he's in charge of all of us. He's Lord of all of us. Ephesians 1, 20-22. He, God, raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Jesus is ahead of anybody or anything that's got any kind of power at all. Jesus is over that. Number one, Hebrews 2, 9. But we do see him, Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, that's in his incarnation, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. In other words, he died first, but then he was, had to be resurrected from that death, and then he was crowned with glory and honor. And the first step God took in exalting Jesus was, of course, to raise him from the dead. And so Paul says when Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even, though, even death on the cross, that's not the end of the story. God then highly exalts him, lifts him up, bestows on him the name which is above every name, that those verses I just read, shows that he has authority. He has the authority to execute judgment. He is over every human being, every lord, every ruler, every power, every authority, everything. He's above all that. And remember, name is a way, it doesn't just mean the label that you put on your locker or your books. Name is, it stands for the essence and character of somebody. So basically when it says the name which is above every name means he's the person who's above every person. Verse 10, so that in the name of Jesus, the person of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's verse 10. Now, the question here is, well, first of all, we know that every knee will bow. That obviously refers to every Christian knee will bow. 
We know that because he's our Lord, he's our king. But what about non-believers? And what about demons? Well, this creates a little bit of a minor controversy here. Before we get into that controversy, let me show you where Paul is quoting from here. It comes from Isaiah 45:23. Isaiah says this, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. That's a pretty fairly direct quote out of Isaiah. Paul also mentions that passage in Isaiah in Romans 14:11. He says this to the Romans, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. That word praise, by the way, the Greek can either be translated as confess or praise, as I'll mention in a minute. And here in this particular translation, NESB, Paul says, Every tongue shall give praise to God, but it's the same thing as saying every tongue shall confess God. Or as the, uh, the NASB says in Isaiah, we'll swear allegiance to God. Now, getting back, now let's look at our controversy here. Does this confessing of God, does that include the demons and the unrighteous? And argue of this, and are in favor of the argument that the verse means that the demons and unrighteous people will bow before God, and they will acknowledge Jesus, not out of love, but out of fear. We can look at some scriptures. This is dealing with demons and the Gospels. This first one it does that. Mark 3:11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, "You are the Son of God!" So there, the demon confessed that Jesus was the Son of God. James 2:19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe in shudder. So the demons believe in God. They fall down and said, "You are the Son of God." And you can, by implication there, if demons acknowledge Christ as Lord out of fear, so will unbelievers. Well, that's the argument that's saying that every knee shall bow includes the unrighteous, unrighteous people, unrighteous demons too. Here's the argument on the other side, which says that no, the demons and unrighteous will not bow their knee before God because that's not what the verse means. The verse means that every knee shall bow means every Christian knee shall bow, every believing knee, if you count the Old Testament saints. Here's what, I'm going to give you two arguments for the proposition that this verse is only referring to Christians bowing their knee to God. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 is the first argument, and I don't believe this one won't work, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. You could take this verse, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, which says this, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, the argument is, if you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, well, then obviously non-believers don't have the Holy Spirit, so how are they going to say Jesus is Lord? But the answer to that is, this verse is not applicable, at least not to demons, because we saw demons saying, we know that you're the Son of God, in Mark 3.11. You are the Son of God. So, so it's not referring to demons, but it could be referring to people, and so you could say, well, demons might confess that God is king, that Jesus is king, but not people can't because this verse right here says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't buy that argument because if, if it's possible for a demon to confess that Jesus is Lord, why in the world can't a human being do it? And that therefore, I think this verse is not referring to, to this. This is a, it's an obscure verse. In my opinion, one, what it could be saying is this, is that this is in the chapter on speaking in tongues and Paul, I think, is allaying the fears of some Corinthians that they're thinking, what are we doing when we're speaking in tongues? We might be speaking to the devil. And Paul says, no, 
you can't say Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit, and since praying in the Spirit is that's what Paul calls it, praying in the Spirit, praying by the Holy Spirit. You're praying, you're saying Jesus is Lord. You're not. That's what you're doing. You're not praying to the devil. Well, I'm not sure if that's a proper interpretation of 1 Corinthians 12:3, but I don't believe that verse can be used to say that it's impossible for human beings, to, for non-Christians, to say Jesus is Lord under duress, under fear. So I believe that's still possible. That is the standard interpretation of that. I've heard, at least I've heard so many people say that that means everybody, unrighteous as well as righteous, will bow before the Lord. But it's not the common, it's not the only opinion. Here's Alfred, Albert Barnes. He makes a comment on Romans 14:11, which where Paul says the same thing, every knee shall bow. He says this, quote, the passage in Isaiah refers particularly, now the passage in Isaiah is the passage that Paul quoted, Isaiah 45:23, that says every knee will bow. And every tongue confess. Barnes says this, quote, The passage in Isaiah refers particularly to the homage which his own people should render to him, or rather it means that all who are saved shall acknowledge him as their God and Savior. The original reference was not to all men, but only to those who should be saved. In this sense, the apostle uses it not as denoting that all men should confess to God, but that all Christians, whether Jewish or Gentile converts, should alike give account to him. So I'm, I'll leave myself 50-50 on that one. Let you decide. I'll report the controversy. You decide which ways it go. But at any rate, Jesus is going to be king at the end. That's, that's the good news. He's going to be exalted above every other name that is named in the world. Here's what Adam Clark says about that. Quote, no creature of God is so far exalted and so glorious as the man Christ Jesus, human nature being in him dignified infinitely beyond the angelic nature, and that this nature has an authority and preeminence which no being either in heaven or earth enjoys. In a word, as man was in the beginning at the head of all the creatures of God, Jesus Christ, by assuming human nature, suffering and dying in it, has raised it to its pristine state. Now, at the end of verse 10, Paul says that every knee will bow of people of those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth. Now, of course, you might think, well, that might help you answer the question, whose knees are going to be bowing? Of those who are on the earth, that would include, include non-believers as well as believers. Could be. But on the other hand, it could be this. Those who are in heaven, that's the angels or, or departed saints. On earth, that's the Christians who are living on earth. And under the earth, that's the departed saints. That's the typical Jewish way of including everybody. Heaven, earth, and under the earth. That's a very a standard Jewish formula, of ta- the way, a way of speaking. It just means everybody. But who everybody is, does it include demons? Does it even include angels? That's debatable. It says every tongue. Do angels have tongues? Every language? They do have languages. Paul, he might have been speaking hypothetically. Tongues of angels. Every tongue. Demons speak. At least they speak when they're inhabiting a human being. Do they have tongues? I think it's referring to every, we at least know that it at least refers to every believer in Christ. Whether it refers to other people who are confessing under duress, I don't know. It really doesn't matter because every believing person, there's going to be tons of us, we will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we do that, we give glory to God the Father. We will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The manifestation of his radiance of his exalted reputation to the whole world, when the whole world will see this is the way God meant it to be for his people to be reflecting his glory. And we're a long way from that now. All right, verse 11, let me finish this audio up with one last comment. 
Paul says every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That word can be translated as every tongue will praise Jesus as Lord. Let me give you a quote from the Ellicott Commentary. This is on Romans 14:11. the same phrase there. Quote, the Greek word is capable of two renderings, confess and praise. Most commentators prefer praise, but it is not quite clear that the English version, the KGV, which has confess, is wrong. That the word can bear this meaning, can bear the, the meaning of confess, is unquestionable. And, and Ellicott quotes James 5.16, where the word is used to confess your sins one to another. Confess, not praise your sins one to another, but confess your sins. So it's an ancient translation problem. Every tongue shall praise God, or every tongue shall confess God. Most commentators prefer praise, according to Ellicott. Well, whatever. The point is, is we're all going to give Jesus the glory that he deserves, and God the Father is going to get glory from that. And so, with that, I am finished with this first section of Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul, having established that the humility of Christ should be an excellent example for the Philippians to follow, in the next section of Philippians 2, he's going to ask the Philippians to be lights in the world, reflections of the glory of Jesus, points of light in the world. We'll take that up next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.